So I feel like if you are Black, and if you have been at a birthday celebration with other Black folks, you know that when it comes time to sing happy birthday, there is no asking like what version you're singing. You're singing the, the, the well-known Stevie Wonder version, right? Like I, I've been at some birthdays where people are like, all right, we're singing happy birthday and there's some black folks in the room and they're like, what version are we singing? But I feel like if you're at a, a function where there's all black folks, it's almost like the rhythm just permeates a room of its own accord. And I think that I grew up knowing that. I grew up knowing and loving Stevie Wonder's happy birthday, but knowing nothing about the actual historical function of it, or even the album it existed on or when it was made. It was just like, this is the way we sing happy birthday in the neighborhood I'm from. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Stevie Wonder's song, Happy Birthday, sits on Hotter Than July. And Hotter Than July as an album, I think, is one of the great Stevie Wonder albums that does not get the love and respect it deserves, in part because it falls outside of his great run of albums in the 70s, and it came after an album that was really uh, divisive and deeply experimental, Secret Life of Plants, and it was just kind of him returning to something new at the start of the decade. And I think that is why Stevie Wonder in 1980 is so interesting. But just off of the Happy Birthday version alone, which Stevie Wonder wrote in an effort to have Martin Luther King's birthday recognized nationally as a holiday. I, I think that Hotter Than July is a really brilliant and enduring artifact of Stevie Wonder looking at where he, he'd been and thinking of somewhere new to go. I'm Hanif Abdurraqib, and from KCRW, this is Lost Notes, 1980, Stevie Wonder. In early 1980, Stevie Wonder was looking for a way to rebound. He was coming off of his journey through the secret life of plants. It was an album that was a critical and commercial downturn for him. There were whispers filtering into his otherwise impenetrable orbit. They were suggesting he'd lost the magic he'd captivated the world with during an unprecedented run of albums during the 1970s. He was a gifted artist at a crossroads of confidence and creativity. Almost no one dominated the 70s like Stevie Wonder did. The mind-bender, Stevie Wonder. Yeah, for once in my life, I have someone who needs me. Someone I've needed so long. Not only in sheer volume of work, but also quality. His work ethic was rooted in an excitement for the music he was creating, but also rooted in an eagerness to offer commentary to a rapidly shifting social and political climate. For this, none of his masterpieces sounded or felt the same, particularly from 1970 to 1976, when Wonder released seven albums. I'm thinking most about Talking Book, Inner Visions, masterpiece, Songs in the Key of Life. It is a brilliant run of albums and songs, one of the greatest in music history. And the 70s 
Wonder achieved rarefied air. His singular talents and his endless imagination intersecting to create a series of opuses that intensified in scale and in sound. Songs in the key of life soared between gospel, funk, and symphonic within its first three tracks alone. And Wonder's thematic concerns were as sprawling as his sonic ones. He was considering the presence of God in his life as richly as he was considering the plight of the disenfranchised, as much as he was considering the multitude of ways that the simplicity of love could propel the human spirit from one moment to the next. Love, the overarching theme Stevie was chasing throughout the decade. A love of place, or a love of the unseen, or a love that swells within a person until the words, I love you, spill out loud and repetitive, perhaps boring, if not for the body the words are spilling out from. Songs in the Key of Life was a high-water mark in a career-defining run. It was 1976. Stevie was just 26 years old, overflowing with genius. The making of the album pushed Wonder to the point of obsession. Sessions took place over two years, all over the country. Wonder sometimes wouldn't sleep for 48 hours at a time, roping in over 100 people to the recording process, accumulating songs, and then setting them aside to accumulate more. There is a vault, Wonder insists now, with several hundred tracks from the songs in the Key of Life sessions. From a purely critical standpoint, I am most often of the belief that if an artist has to choose from several hundred tracks to form an album of 15 or more tracks, there probably aren't 15 or more great tracks to choose from in the first place. But most artists aren't Stevie Wonder. And so... If Stevie ever wants to grant access to that vault of unheard tunes from that album's sessions, I'd be one of the first in line. After strolling about the grounds, the guests were assembled in the main house studio for that long-awaited moment, Stevie's entrance. At the listening party for Songs in the Key of Life on September 7th, 1976, Wonder wore a cowboy suit, a gun holster with words stitched across it. Number one with a bullet. With master in hand, Stevie and Gil Markle entered the control room. As he threaded the first master into the system, the members of the press prepared themselves to hear the first cut. And when it was released a few weeks later, the album did hit number one and stayed there for 14 weeks straight. But then... Wonder went quiet for nearly three years. The next time journalists descended on a Stevie Wonder album listening party, it was the fall of 1979 in the New York Botanical Garden. Wonder had been working on another album, a soundtrack based on a Wallen Green documentary, The Secret Life of Plants. The documentary was based off of a book that argued in favor of plant sentience. 
Your plants might know when you're lying or might react when you're happy. Research conducted in the Soviet Union leads scientists to believe that plants may think. Attached to delicate electronic instruments, a cabbage plant registers annoyance to the exhaling of tobacco smoke on its leaf surfaces. Enamored with the idea, Wonder had the film's producer, Michael Braun, describe each image in the film to him. This allowed Wonder to take the task of creating the film's score, translating the descriptions into sound. The Secret Life of Plants album is compositionally as ambitious as anything else Wonder had attempted. The moods of some songs shift rapidly from sparse and airy acoustics to large, sweeping synthesizer arrangements. Other songs shift in glacial movements in an attempt to mirror the slow growth cycle of a plant. In some ways, the great fascinating work of the album is that a blind musician created a score for a film he couldn't see. It was Wonder's prolific imagination, once again, bringing the descriptions of images to life and braiding together a sonic journey for a medium he couldn't consume in the manner it was intended. Critics, however, didn't agree. Reviews were harshly mixed. The Village Voice called it painfully awkward. Rolling Stone called the song stunted, wandering instrumentals. The album entered the charts at number four before quickly tumbling south. After winning three Grammy Awards for Album of the Year between 1974 and 1977, Secret Life of Plants was seen by most as a shift in a bad direction a highly anticipated album that showed wonder on the wrong side of his limitless ambition. Nothing made this more clear than the tour for the album, which included over 60 musicians, singers, and crew. It included computers to synchronize synthesizers and a full movie screen to project scenes from the film. Ticket sales didn't rise to the level of money spent, and the tour was cut to just six dates. Stevie Wonder faced his first defeat of the decade, just as its final months were ticking away. He insisted that the album's failure was due to Motown. Before Songs in the Key of Life, the label had inked a new deal with Wonder, not only paying him unprecedented money, but giving him unprecedented power over the direction of his career and the future of the label. Still, not even they could figure out how to effectively market the oversized passion project that was Secret Life of Plants. At the dawn of 1980, there were those who thought Stevie Wonder had maybe given all he could reasonably offer. And if that was to be it, there'd be a lot to be thankful for. A full career of classic albums before Wonder had even turned 30. But, of course, with a new decade upon him, the artist got right back to work. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled 
This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. In late 1979 and into the early months of 1980, Stevie Wonder secluded himself in Los Angeles inside of his newly acquired Wonderland Studios, which rested inside of a building that had spent previous decades as the American Cancer Society. Wonder repurposed the building into a sprawling, up-to-date studio, the kind of place someone could go to hide out and create for days, weeks, or months on end without leaving. In 1980, the mission wasn't complete reinvention. What critics and fans might have missed on Secret Life of Plants while they were so focused on the strangeness of it was that Stevie had already been toying with shifts in sound that fit what was coming in the new decade and beyond. He'd already figured out how to master the synthesizer in ways his peers hadn't. He was playing with tone and voice modulation. What he needed to figure out was how to once again translate his ability into making songs that were both challenging to him, but accessible to a wider audience, and how to collapse the idea of genre and make it bow to his musical whims. The album's eventual title, Hotter Than July, would come from its first single. Master Blaster, Jammin', is one of the great songs of the 80s. One of those songs you've probably heard, even if you don't know it by its title. It was influenced by Wonder spending more time performing with Bob Marley and becoming enamored with the sounds of reggae music. Marley and Wonder had been touring together, sharing stages, sounds, and influences. The lead single showcased Wonder's newfound sonic dexterity, but also showcased a newer, louder optimism. The song envisions global world peace, calls for an end to the civil war in Zimbabwe, and imagines all countries lifted up from poverty. Hotter Than July was released into the world in September of 1980. It was thrown into a world in turmoil, seemingly miles away from the utopia it was trying to imagine. And the title itself was appropriate. The album was released after a historic and deadly heat wave hovered over parts of the country. Southern and central portions of the United States saw temperatures of over 90 degrees every day until September. The heat wave only broke briefly when Hurricane Allen touched down in Texas in early August, bringing with it a cluster of tornadoes that also blew through the state. The only mercy from the heat wave couldn't be called mercy at all. In Midwestern cities, there were droughts as temperatures climbed to the triple digits. In Memphis, there was a two-week stretch of temps above 100 degrees, maxing out at 108. 
Dallas had nearly a month above 105, with a handful of those days above 110. The high-pressure ridge that caused the heat wave also led to windstorms that would blow through cities, killing and injuring residents. There were an estimated 10,000 direct and indirect heat-related fatalities. Crops were damaged and livestock lost. In photos from that summer, there are dogs standing in between large cracks in the concrete, eyes wide, tongues unfurling from their open mouths. Teenagers sit alongside puddles of melted ice cream. A man holds a box fan close to his chest like a lover returned from war. By the end of September, there was mercy, carried on the cool breeze of autumn, arriving too late but just on time. On the cover of Hotter Than July, there is an artistic rendering of Stevie Wonder against a background that looks like a sunset. His mouth half open, exhaustion on the way to a smile, sweat pouring from his forehead to his cheeks, the sun causing a bright burst of reflection at the edge of his glasses. If you stare at it too long, you might start to feel a little warm. Even today, the album sounds like a gently arranged collage of sounds and styles that might be haphazardly jumbled in the hands of anyone but wonder. The album spent 40 weeks on the charts, peaking at number three in December of 1980. More than a commercial rebound, it was a critical reintroduction to wonder himself. The critics who seemed to have forgotten his immense capabilities were now back. This time, though, they were lauding Wonder's rediscovery of the talents they've grown comfortable with. And there is, of course, something to be said here about the limited risks Black artists were and still are allowed to take before being written off entirely by largely white critics. But the magazines and publications who had assumed Wonder's 70s run was the best he had to give were once again singing his praises. The album was seen as a career rebound that didn't sacrifice experimentation. The album's second single, I Ain't Gonna Stand For It, finds Wonder singing with a pronounced country twang, so sharp that one might have to unfurl the liner notes to check for who the guest vocalist is. All I Do is one of the great Stevie album cuts, its electric danceability seasoned with Wonder's urgent, almost growling vocals. Cash in Your Face updates some of Wonder's previous investment in funk without completely pivoting away from the rhythms he'd established in the past. It is an album of Wonder trying on every outfit in the new decade's closet and finding that all of them fit him perfectly. The House has rejected a bill to make the late Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, January 15th, a national holiday. A majority favored the legislation, 252 to 133, but that was just short of the two-thirds majority required under the parliamentary procedure which brought the measure to a vote. At the end of 1979, a bill to recognize Martin Luther King's birthday as a national holiday fell five votes short in the U.S. House of Representatives. There were objections that a holiday to honor a private citizen would go against tradition since King never held any office. Then again, 
neither did Christopher Columbus. With this failure, the King Center turned to the public to help get the campaign moving. They turned to corporations, actors, and of course, musicians. It was easy to make this case to Wonder, who had openly championed civil rights on his records and outside of them for years. On the sleeve of the liner notes to Hotter Than July, there is a large portrait of Martin Luther King against a black background. Above the photo, the date of King's birth and the date of his death are printed in white lettering. On the opposite side of the sleeve, there are five photos. Across the top, a photo of a city divided by a six-lane highway, both sides of that highway encased in smoke, touched by the aftermath of a riot. Across the bottom, a photo of white police officers with white helmets and weapons at the ready appearing to advance on black protesters standing nonviolently in defiance. In a photo to the left, there's a black boy being pulled by the limbs, two police officers on each arm and one on his leg. In a photo to the right, a black man is in a pool of his own blood outside of a store. Another black man is crouched against the wall, looking away in agony. In the foreground, a police officer in a white helmet stands with a hand on his hip. The photo in the center is of Martin Luther King Jr. leading a march. It is the type of photo that, independent of the others around it, might often get used to prop up King in the American imagination as someone determined, righteous, and nonviolent, entirely detached from the machinery of American racism and violence that killed him. This photo placed directly at the middle of the other four horrific and jarring photos, is a reminder that for Black people, there is no other way to frame Martin Luther King without explicitly placing him in the context of an ongoing fight for liberation, one that he did not see through because his country didn't allow him to live long enough to do it. If that weren't enough to argue for a celebration of King to be stamped into the American calendar and consciousness, on the opposite page, Underneath the smiling standalone photo of King, Stevie Wonder wrote his own message. It is believed that for a man to lay down his life for the love of others is a supreme sacrifice. Jesus Christ, by his own example, showed us that there is no greater love. For nearly 2,000 years now, we have been striving to have the strength to follow that example. Martin Luther King was a man who had that strength. He showed us nonviolently, a better way of life, a way of mutual respect, helping us avoid much bitter confrontation and inevitable bloodshed. We still have a long road to travel until we reach the world that was his dream. We in the United States must not forget either his supreme sacrifice or that dream. I and a growing number of people believe that it is time for our country to adopt legislation that will make January 15th, Martin Luther King's birthday, a national holiday, both in recognition of what he achieved and as a reminder of the distance which still has to be traveled. Join me in the observance of January 15th, 1981, as a national holiday. I believe in the dream. Dr. Martin Luther King. In my next album, I have a song that I wrote, dedicated to him. It's called Happy Birthday. Because and I want you all to understand this very clearly. 
make no mistake about what I'm saying. My belief is that January the 15th should become a national holiday. On Hotter Than July, the song Happy Birthday is a joyous contrast to the darker tones of the album's interior artwork. It is the final song on the record, and it insists upon the hands clapping. The lyrics that make up the verses are riddled with sometimes comical, slapped-together cliches, but it is a chorus that rings out and endures. By the time you hear this, summer will maybe be over, or feel over. Where I am, the heat has already arrived, nudging its way through the brief daylight of spring. It is no climate to be outside in, and yet it is the only climate to be outside in. Black people marching through neighborhoods, shutting down streets and bridges. Empty water bottles have filled the passenger side of my car in this heat. In this heat, I've given up on wiping sweat away. I've just decided to become one with it. The sweat falls into my mouth when I chant or sing with my peers. We walked and shouted in the name of a justice we could not yet see but felt on the horizon. It takes a horrible ache to drag people outside in this weather, during a pandemic, no less. It takes an impossible desire to be seen and to be heard. By the time you hear this, I hope there are more than mere echoes of the movement that exists. And what I love is how a protest can quickly burst into joyful excess in a moment when there's a pause from walking or when a car drives by playing the right song or like here where I live when it was someone's birthday and there in front of the state house, encased by the tanks of police officers and the trigger men on top of buildings, a small group burst into the singing of Happy Birthday, the only way it could have been sung. Happy It is a blessing to be Black and know that in the midst of any birthday celebration with other Black folks, when we all gather around a candlelit confection and someone shouts out that happy birthday must be sung, we are singing the one Stevie wrote. We are clapping our hands and falling into each other laughing when someone gets too excited and misses a beat. We are poking fun at the one person who started singing the slow, droning, traditional birthday song, the one with no rhythm. Stevie wrote the song for Martin, of course. But even in the years after 1986, when Martin's birthday was first celebrated as a national holiday, the chorus of Stevie's happy birthday is the one that still holds on and brings a joyful tapestry of noise out of reveling black folks. The song is, for me, the greatest triumph on a triumphant album. A promise that even when Stevie fades away, he'll never truly fade. There will be a people who remember him who celebrate in his name, 
People who weren't even born when he wrote the songs on Hotter Than July, knowing only one way to celebrate another trip through the calendar on this spinning rock. We'll make the dream become a reality. I know we will. Because our hearts tell us Lost Notes, 1980, was written and performed by me, Hanif Abdurraqib. The senior producer for Lost Notes is Mike Dodge Weiskopf. The show's creator and executive producer is Nick White. He also edited this piece. KCRW's USC Luminary Fellow is Victoria Alejandro, and she provided production support for this series. Special thanks to Kathy Mandel on this episode. This has been Lost Notes, 1980. Thank you for listening.